an account of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. <clears throat> Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, Aram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was the father of Jeram, and Jeram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, fourteen generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, to Bebes who read it, to we who hear it, and to we who share together in it now. Open it to us that our hearts might see more deeply what it is that you have done in our doing in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we ask. Amen. Amen. We heard two genealogies in one morning, and it kind of could make you wonder, lists of names, what's the big deal with lists of names? But lists of names are really ways of telling our story. I want to give you an example right here, something I was um, in an antique store with my parents going through the aisles, and my dad said, here's a sign-in book for a church. I said, really? Let me see. And guess what it is? It's a sign-in book for our church. Oh, St. John's Evangelical from 1946 or 36 forward. Here's lists of names. We were looking through this for about 40 minutes this morning, and we found names of families that we know. We found it's a visitor's log, so a lot of these folks are people who came one time. There is a sense in which this is a record of those who came, but it's not a record of those who stayed. There's names that are on the rolls that aren't here. There are names that are here that aren't on the rolls. But this tells a story. It's part of our community. It's part of our history. And all the history is, in reality, a record of what God has done. And 
God's word in the Bible is confirmed by God's work in history. We see his faithfulness by looking at the past. This season, we call it epiphany. Epiphany, we often think of it as being like a flash of insight, right? Historically, it's meant something a little bit different. It's meant something that becomes understood as it comes into view. I don't know if you've ever been on a ship and rounded a corner where all of a sudden you see you're just looking at rocks and hillsides, and then all of a sudden you see a port right there. It's come into view. That's what an epiphany is. It's, it's, a, it's something that is opened up to you. It's a little bit less like a flash and more like a sunrise. In fact, we use the language of sunrise when we talk about epiphanies, don't we? We say, you'll never guess what dawned on me. If you stand on the north shore of Massachusetts and you look north, there's this big point out east that sticks out into the water, a big granite peninsula. It's called Marblehead. And you could see, if you stood there, the sunrise behind it. And so we often say, when we discover the obvious, we say, light dawns on Marblehead. That's an epiphany. It's a sen- it has a sense of dawning. Epiphany has been used by the church to speak of the 12th day of Christmas. And it's the day that we recall the Magi who came and visited the infant Jesus. It's sort of like then a flash of light. At the same time, the church has an older tradition, a tradition that says that from Matthew, the first verse of Matthew to Matthew chapter four, there are seven events that take place in the life of Jesus before he says a word, before he performs a distinct action that reveal who he is. Seven events in the early life of Jesus that are, if you will, epiphany moments, a way of thinking about this dawning. And Jesus still has to dawn on us. You can know him. You will still not know everything about him. Think about it. If, if we're going to have 10,000 years bright, shining as the sun, uh, with no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began, there's a lot to know about him. <laughs> John says at the end of the Gospel of John, you know, I wrote these things down, but if, if I wrote down the rest of the things that he did during this sojourn on earth, the, all the books in the world couldn't hold it. Huh. And he's existed from eternity, huh? How many books would that be? Okay, so, so we have to say that, that Jesus has to dawn on us. He, he grows in, in our understanding of who he is and what he's done. And this is important for us because this is our faith and this is how we walk in faith. It's also important for us because others need to know him. We need to be able to share with them. And it's, it's very difficult for people to get a hold of this idea that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. It's a difficult idea. If you've never heard it before, you might think it sounds a little bit crazy. But it doesn't matter if it's crazy, if it's true. And the fact that, uh, you know, last week I, I was holding a little baby in my arms and she is probably the brightest and smartest and most beautiful baby ever born. OK, but what she didn't do is change history or shape nations 
There's one who, as a baby, was already moving the wheels of history in certain ways. And this is remarkable for us. This is what the story of the Magi is about, and this is what this genealogy is about. And what we're going to see today, really, I've got two points here. here. Here's the whole outline, if you're ready for it. Jesus is the goal of God's covenant with Abraham and David. That's point number one. Jesus is God's salvation to all who trust him. That's point number two. Um, so that's what, what we're really going to be looking at. And this is the, the loaded verse right here. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The first thing Matthew tells us is that Jesus is the anointed one. We, we say this Christ, or we might say Messiah. They all mean the same thing. They all have the same idea that there were three kinds of people in Israel that were anointed ones, kings, priests, and prophets. So Jesus is likely, from the very first thing we read, we know he's going to be probably one of those. But what we don't expect is that he's all three of those, because that's never been done since the creation of the world. God made, took great care to make sure these three offices were separated after the fall. But there was going to be one who would be all three, prophet, priest, and king. We also see that he is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we heard these two covenants earlier. Jean read the first one. Hannah read the, the second one. The first was the covenant with Abraham. The gist of this, if you listened carefully to what Jean was reading, you heard, I will bless, bless, bless. Bless, <laughs> right? Um, that's what God was saying to Abraham. God was saying to Abraham, I'm going to bless you so that through you will become will come one who will bless the nations. And so the one that was to come from Abram, the fulfillment of the promises to Abram was above all a person who would deal with sin, deal with the wrong relationship that we have with God and would make it right and would be a blessing to the nations of the world. So that's that first part, this covenant. It's someone who's going to bring God's blessing and deal with the cost and consequences of sin. The covenant with, with David was different. Remember, David said, I'm going to build you a house, God. And then God spoke to Nathan, and Nathan came and said, no, this is what the Lord says. You're not going to be, build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to put you, I'm going to give you a throne that will last forever which means that there's going to be one who's going to be a great king. Now, the only way that a king can occupy a throne forever is to always have a descendant or to never die. But it says that the line of David's going to end. We're going to see that even further. And so what God must have been speaking of was an eternal king, one who would always occupy the throne of David, one who would set right all things on earth and reign with righteousness and justice and truth. And we see this being spoken of further in places like Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 11. This is God's covenant with David. And so just reading this first verse, not even getting into the list of names yet, these are the things that would come to the Jewish reader. They would realize that in Jesus, all of this stuff is coming to a head. This is a transformative word. These are the generations of Jesus, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, the first thing we realize as we think about these promises, even, you know, God said to Abram, go to the land, I will show you. So there's some obedience there. 
But then God says, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. You will be a, I will make you a great blessing. And in your name, the nations of the, in your seed, the nations of the world will be blessed. It's God who is active constantly in this covenant. In the same way, God says to, to David, I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to put a descendant of yours on the throne forever. It's God who's active. This deals with truth before it deals with faith. The first thing about the gospel, the the gospel is so important, so essential, so necessary because it's true. (laughs) Like I said, it can be crazy. That's okay. It's true. And this is and this is why history, again, is so important. History is the arena of the demonstration of God's truth. So it's God who brings about his promise and the news about Jesus is God's activity. So that's that's point one. The point two is that that Jesus is God's salvation to all who trust him. And what this genealogy shows is that throughout salvation history, that there were moments when it seemed like the program of God was hanging by a thread. There were moment after moment when it seemed like there's no way this can happen. It's come against the wall of impossibility. And the only way that the next step would occur is that God would step in and fulfill his promises. He was a God of repeated rescue in order to make the ultimate rescue. I mean, just to go back and, and get one example of it. And here's kind of the first sub point for this is God blesses his people when we trust him in impossible circumstances. God blesses his people when we trust him in impossible circumstances. Abram and Sarah need an heir in order for the promise to be fulfilled. So they make a scheme for it to happen and it backfires. There's no way the the scripture says repeatedly they're both past childbearing age. There's no way this can happen. And God says, or Abram says, can we adopt someone? Can we have a child with someone else? Can we have a surrogate? Can we do? And God says, no, I'm going to come back next year. And Sarah's going to have a son. It was impossible. And God did it. What we begin to see is this, that that the plan of God was always small enough to be overlooked, but always packed by such a powerful force that it was always unstoppable. You could miss it, but you can't stop it. That's God's work. You can miss it, but you can't stop it. So God blesses his people when we trust him in, in impossible circumstances. Here's the next thing that we learn in this genealogy is that God includes us when the world maligns and misunderstands us. There's five women listed in this genealogy, and they're selected with great care. They're selected to point out one common factor that all of them have. All of them have actions that were misunderstood by which they were maligned. And all of them were declared righteous by God. You know, I would rather be on the rolls of heaven than the rolls of earth. I would rather have the applause of of God than have the applause of humanity. And I think you would too. But think about this, that, that these are people that the world overlooked and yet God lifts them up and places these women in his hall of fame of faith. Each one of them declaring them righteous, declaring them as a model to be, to be modeled after declaring them to be um, faithful in the lineage Jesus was also overlooked and misunderstood. 
This is the way the plan of God works. It works where the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and this is marvelous in our eyes. This is how the plan of God functions, that he takes what seems foolish in the eyes of the world and demonstrates his wisdom by it. Foolish stuff like this guy who is a subway musician, you know, and God reached out and called me. And like you, wherever you were in your life, when God reached out and called you and included you, and people may have said at some point, well, she's acting really weird now. I wonder what's happened to her. But, but it was God at work. And someone may have at some point overlooked your gifts and your calling, but didn't stop God from using you in the lives of your family, in the lives of your friends, in the lives of this community, in the life of this church. God raised you up and used you because he's faithful. So God includes us when the world misunderstands us and maligns us. But there's another side of this also, that God will cut off those who resist and reject his grace. And we're faced with this here. And it's frightening to think that there are names that should be in this list that aren't. And we could say it was to create the beautiful structure of sevens that Matthew was making. But he had to choose which names. He had to be led by the spirit in choosing them. And one of the ones that he chose, if you look between Josh after Josiah, you'll see after Josiah, Jehoiachin, but you don't see Jehoiakim. You see Jeconiah is Jehoiachin's other name. Why is this king missing? Was it, is it such a big deal that, uh, that this particular king should be missing? This is what it says in, in, in Second Kings, that this king was so wicked that it prompted God to raise up armies of other nations to come against Israel. This king was the last straw in the line of Israel. And finally, um, this king signs alliances with Egypt and then signs alliances with Babylon and is committing idolatry. And Jeremiah says, Jehoiakim, you're going to go into exile. You're never going to see Israel again. You're never going to see the land of Judah. Your son won't prosper on the throne. None of your descendants will be king again until the coming of God's righteous servant. And then, Je- then God speaks to uh, Jehoiakim's son and says to Jehoiachin, says, even if you were my signet ring, the ring that I sign stuff with, even if you were my stamp of approval, I would take you off and throw you away. And so we see Jehoiachin mentioned there, but we don't see Jehoiakim mentioned there. And we know that he would ne- that there would never be a descendant who would occupy the throne of Israel again. In fact, if you look two names down, you see the name of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was called by God. He was um, raised up by King Cyrus and sent by Cyrus and Darius uh, to go back to Judea and to rebuild the temple and to begin um, the, the worship of Israel again. But he would never be king. He is a governor. Can you imagine that? Your grandpa is the one who blew it. 
Okay? Okay. He's the one that caused the whole mess of the last 40 years of exile. And you're there rebuilding the house of the Lord. You're, you're undergoing, a, you're being maligned. You're being attacked. People are writing letters to the king of Persia about you. I mean, it's nasty politics. And at the end of it, they were, they were having to build with one hand while they held their swords with the other hand. While they're building the walls of Jerusalem, they're building, they've got the, they've got things started, you know, they've got the altar built, they start offering sacrifices every morning and every night, and they're building away, and all this time Zerubbabel is thinking, I should be called the seed of Israel, but my name means the seed of Babel. I should be, I'm doing this, I'm never going to be king, and I don't know if ever God is going to accept me again. That's heavy stuff. And so, out of the blue, God speaks through Haggai. It's in Haggai chapter 2. And he says this. He says, Zerubbabel, you laid the foundation of the temple, and you're going to finish it. And I declare today, you're my signet ring. In other words, I'm putting you back on. You're You're not my reject. You're my stamp of approval. And this is what the gospel does. The gospel takes the, what was the refuse of earth and displays it as the treasure of heaven. It takes the people who thought, who thought that they were least or others thought they were least and shows them as God's beloved treasure. How does it happen? What made the difference? Was it all that work that he did? The difference is this. Trusting God. How do we know God is trustworthy? Because after after 1,200 years of his promises, he brought us Messiah. He brought us Jesus. His promises to Abram and each successive generation listed here, his promises to David and each of the successive generations there, all were fulfilled in the coming of this person, Jesus Christ, so that there would be someone who would reign on the throne of David forever. God restores those who trust in him. And this is a word for us. You you see, part of the reason that God does a restorative work is to do a restorative work. Remember when God said to Abram, not on the basis of what you've done, but go to the land I'll show you, I'm going to bless you. Then God says, so you can be a blessing to the nations. If God had not restored Zerubbabel, if he had not put him back on, you might not be saved. This is the faithfulness of God in history. God sustained a line of faithful people until we read the story of two faithful people living in the backwaters of Israel, Miriam and Yosef. And God spoke to them and said, I'm going to give you a baby It'll be born by the Holy Spirit. The child, Mary, that you bear will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is the long-awaited promise, and this is the the faithfulness of God. So I I want us to, to think about this. Beginning with a genealogy shows that Jesus is coming is the work of God. It's the program of God written across history. God is guiding history to 
fulfill the promises of salvation, but it's truth that has to be trusted. In other words, it's promises that apply to those who grasp hold of them, or if you will, they are promises that have to grab hold of you. God's faithful guidance, if you look back through history and you see his hand moving, his faithful guidance made history purposeful. History has a reason because God is God. <coughs> but he comes into your life and you, per- and you participate in the purposes of God. And he makes your future possible. It can only happen as you surrender your life to him. And what happens as you do is you find that in Christ, God does two things. He, he saves us and he guides us. So, so all of this is to say God has a plan and a purpose for, a lot, for our lives. And he's working it out through generations. Generations, right? A list of names woven in and out of our lives. That's a beautiful reality. That's what God does. We kind of, we we sometimes will speak about it as being not about us. It's about God, and that's true. But it's also not about you in the sense that it's about the next generation, too, and the generation before us, before you as well. And it's about you in the sense that God is using you so that there will be a next generation. And it's about us in a very real way because as you look at God's people across time, as you look at everyone since the foundation stone of St. John's Evangelical was laid in 1903, and you look at every generation since, right? That is a story of God's faithfulness. That demonstrates the truth of the gospel. So I want us to think about where we are and what this might say to us. If, if in Christ, God faithfully saves us, he rescues us, and he, he guides us, what does that say about us wherever we are in our lives? It's, sometimes it's easy to look at our lives and think, I'm a failure. I've blown that. And we forget that the story is not over and that God has purposes and that God is faithful and that God is guiding and rescuing. And so what does that say to us as parents with children? Or what does that say to us who are young and starting out? Or what does that say for those of us who are older and we're looking back at our lives? What does that say to us, to those of us who are who are married and we're trying to figure out how to make things work well. What does that say for us in our friendships when sometimes things go rocky in the road of our life together? What does it say about life's meaning and purpose? In all those places, God is faithful and God is guiding. And even the things that look like setbacks or even failures, we remember they're in God's hand and the story ain't over yet. How does this speak about our community, about this ragtag but beautiful, faithful band continuing to meet and to worship and encourage and to serve? The story ain't over yet. God is our deliverer. God is faithful. God is at work. We don't know what he's going to do yet. 
But this does something for us. We're part of something a lot bigger. We're part of something that God is doing across generations. And I believe for generations until Christ returns. So I just want you to think about that and pray for a moment. I'm just going to rest in God's presence and ask you to consider how is this speaking to me? How is this reality something that, that I need to hear? And then we'll um, sing our closing song.